Welcome back to the Space Salvi Institute podcast. I'm Andrew Pettiprin, talking as always with Bobby Mixa in Poland. Bobby, how are you? I'm good, Andrew. How are you? I heard it's cold in Texas. It's much too cold for me in Texas, but it it will soon pass, and uh, then we'll get back to we'll get back to the heat. I hope eventually. <laughs> I don't like winter very much. Yeah. Well, you know, so, come to Poland in the summer. So, yeah. We're looking forward to that for sure. But we're also looking forward to this conversation that we have in front of us today. Uh, we're really delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Michael Hanby, who is Associate Professor of Religion and Philosophy of Science at the John Paul II Institute in Washington, D.C. And uh, we are just, I have so many thoughts about where we might go with this conversation. So really looking forward to it. Uh, Professor Hanby, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's it's good to to be here and, and good to see you again, Bobby. Yeah, yeah, likewise. It's been a couple of years. So always eager to talk to you and always looking for your latest article. So yeah, before we before we started recording, um, the three of us were just chit-chatting about how uh, when Bobby and I used to work together at Word on Fire, we uh, I, I I didn't I admit about four years ago or so. Uh, Dr. Hamby, I didn't know your work, but um, Bobby began to tell me about you. And actually, the first thing he said was, you know, I had this professor at the JP2 Institute who's a former Anglican like you. So you and I have that mm. in common, I think, uh, Dr. Hamby. But the thing that I just have really latched onto in your work, and I know Bobby, too, is your the way that you talk about technology. And I know that you write about so many different things, but something that just that really is beginning to to occur to me and maybe even weigh on me is that now, of course, there's a group of people who are all in on technology and they believe that that's the future of humanity and whatever. But then there's sort of a lot of other people who are kind of okay with it, but kind of reticent about it. And they have a whole kind of throat clearing exercise that they do where they say, well, now, of course, we're grateful for this. And now, of course, we're grateful for that. But what are we going to do about these sort of outlying problems related to technology, right? Now, in your work, I have really felt a kind of um, a, a kind of kindred spirit in your perspective, which is to say, the problem is a whole lot bigger, really, than than these kind of quasi apologists for technology would admit. So maybe I'll just throw it to you from there. And Bobby, I know you want to jump in too. But what what do you say to people who, you know, just in casual conversation, I know you write for a popular audience and for a scholarly audience. You know, what do you say to people who are just going through their kind of ho-hum lives trying to make sense of technology? Well, I, I do have my own version of that uh, that apologetics, you know, that, that throat clearing that you described. It's almost required, right? I mean, to, to raise fundamental or deeply critical questions about technology or science is, is um, I think, as Wendell Berry said, sort of scratch the surface of a, of, of a kind of fundamentalism oftentimes. Um, that and the fact that um, insofar as the point is not uh, to issue some kind of moralistic um, denunciation of technology, uh, but to understand it. I mean, what is re required, I think, to in, in, in honesty to acknowledge, I mean, it's, technology is almost magic. Um, the powers that it's placed into our hands are are wonderful in the old sense and that it elicits uh, amazement or, or or wonder and um and it is so thoroughly and deeply uh intertwined 
with our lives. We are so utterly dependent upon it. Um, our access to reality is so thoroughly mediated by it that it's, it, it, it would not only be churlish, but almost kind of unmeaning to, to, to denounce it in that way because it has become uh, a kind of second nature for us or what I sometimes call a, a regime of necessity uh, for us. And uh, insofar as we are um, tool-making and tool-using animals, insofar as that it lies very close to the bone of, of, of what it means to be um, to, to live in the, in, in the image of God, um, the, the, the fusion of, uh, of technology or, or of nature and artifice lies very close to the human condition. So um, for all of those reasons, I think it's necessary at times to, to, to hedge what one has to say or to offer those kinds of qualifications or that kind of a, a, a apology or at least that kind of clarification about one what I am and I'm not saying. And yet those very same things are why it's so deeply problematic. Right, because uh, we are so utterly dependent upon it, because it is a regime of necessity, because it does, in ways both obvious and and hidden, um, shape our perception of reality, mediate our access to reality, um, and it's why that kind of denunciation or that kind of affirmation, of, you know, the, the the idea that technology is just this sort of collection of of devices and instruments outside of us that we. Um, that are indifferent in themselves and um, can be used in morally illicit and or morally illicit ways, while not false, is really not adequate to grasp what technology is for us, what it means for us, um, its power over us. And so really, you know, my work in this area is just an attempt insofar as it is within my powers to try and understand as, as, as deeply and comprehensively as possible um, what it means to live with and in the midst of all of this. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, you know, when you talk about technology, I always remember you made a distinction, like you, what you just did with the devices out there, but then technology, technologia, uh, a way of understanding. And so could you maybe say a couple of words about this maybe narrowing uh, perhaps, or maybe even a novel way of thinking about reason, because I know you do a lot of work too on early modernity. Um, and instead of just reducing things to like, okay, um, this is all this kind of praxis and Marxism, uh, the 20th century, 19th century, uh, you go all the way back to people like Francis Bacon to say that, hey, this has been with us for a long time. And it's not just something from Europe that has been imported to America um, that have is some, somehow like polluted the stream here, but yet it somehow is this new thing that finds in a way uh, its origins perhaps in, in this new thing called America. Um, and so it's just interesting too, because I've been reading a lot too about like people like, like Nietzsche who read a lot of Emerson and then you know, Emerson's whole thing. And so you have this kind of, I, I'm bringing in a lot here, but uh, you, you have people saying, oh, it's from Europe. Uh, but then the very people who are, they're blaming as are reading the Americans they're now discovering. And so it's just very, it's just this new, the early modernity seems to be such an important time for this new thing. 
it's such a fascinating uh, historical period. And, you know, the thought that issues from that period is, is so uh, revolutionary and so powerful in its historical effect and how it is, has shaped our world and, you know, what, you know, some call the kind of the, the social imaginary or the, you know, Charles Taylor's eminent frame, the way that, uh, uh, you know, we in frame um, our, uh, our, our, our understanding of reality and the way that shapes what we can and can't think about. Um, there's a lot in what you said. I'll try and I, I don't know if I'll even remember it all, but let me deal with some of the aspects that most that most jumped out at me. I mean, first of all, you 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 made reference to the the peculiar um, and peculiarly modern word that fuses, you know, techne and 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 logos, knowing and making. Uh, and what that 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 signifies, you're absolutely right, is um, a revolutionary reconception um, in early modern thought. And Francis Bacon, you're right, does typify this, you know, probably better than anyone. Um, a, a radical reconception of both reason itself and what reason always strives for, uh, namely truth. You know, and whereas the entire Western Greek and Christian tradition, or the predominant one, had always um, subordinated the, the the practical and the mechanical, the you know, practical reason and the mechanical arts to um, a theoretical and contemplative reason. The one aiming for either you know the good in the moral sense or what can be be produced in the the the, the creative sense of making. All of this was subordinate to. Um, uh, and served ultimately um, the attempt to discover truth um, the, in, in the sense of, uh, of an order that precedes us, uh, the kind of eternal, and an order that precedes us that reflects um, the, the, the eternal divine wisdom, right? So that the idea that to, to enter into to contemplation um, was to touch um, uh, what doesn't change, um, and, and and to discover something of the, the the eternal order and structure of things, um, the fusion of techne and logos, knowing and making, um, is ultimately the rendering of that older sense of reason obsolete, um, and the replacement of it. And and it's funny you mentioned Francis Bacon. I mean, Francis Bacon is quite self conscious of the fact that he's doing this. That he's offering a new conception of reason that has to be evaluated not on the terms of the old conception of reason, but on its own terms. Um, and this new conception of reason would 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 fuse um, knowing and making, techne and logos, um, and be judged in its truth by success in producing um, uh, new inventions, new products. Uh, manipulating uh, uh, nature according to a preset plan, isolating causes and effects in experimental fashion. And so in, in a certain sense, technology is both a, 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 a new, in its deepest sense, is uh, a new, and by new, I mean, you know, 500 years old now, uh, a new conception of reason that um, measures its veracity in terms of its success in um, conquering, manipulating, predicting uh, nature, and on that basis, generating um, 
what we more commonly think of as technology, new tools uh, and instruments uh, which further the purpose of commanding and controlling nature and 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 bettering um, our states. And so, you know, there's the old saying that nothing succeeds like success. Um, when success becomes the the measure of truth, the older questions, uh, which may or may not give you uh, practical success in, in in such matters, kind of fall by the wayside and become obsolete. And the result is is that. Um, this new conception of reason that is inherently um, technological in this deeper sense comes to to define what it means for us to think. Um, to exclude from our ways of thinking and speaking and apprehending the world um, the older understanding. Uh, and really, therefore, determining um, uh, what it is that we as moderns uh, uh, see and think about and what our society um, is collectively preoccupied with, uh, which tends to be um, progress, scientific and technological pro progress itself. So I've often said that that um, and, and you, you mentioned America. What's peculiar about about um, uh, the American experiment? And it's interesting that we that we describe our collective life in these terms, right? As an experiment, right? What is peculiar about it, I think, is that you know, it's predominantly and originally the work, uh, though it's been infused um, from a lot of different streams in the centuries since, you know, um, predominantly and originally the work of English-speaking Protestants, right, who did not bring these older uh, uh, Greek uh, uh, and Catholic uh, traditions across the sea with them. Um, and that really bears no no memory, certainly no positive memory of them, such that our our sort of organizing the, the sort of organizing logic of of our, our our culture is arguably rooted in this in in this modern foundation. What I which why I often say that you know um, North America, the the United States tend to tends to be essentially modern in a way that that that. European modernity is not. Um, and that to that extent, this collective conquest of, of, of nature uh, pursued across generations has really been our collective purpose insofar as we have one. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in a, in a scholarly uh, setting, some, uh, I'll sometimes make the kind of provocative suggestion um, upsetting to the, the, the Guild of Political Theorists that if there's a a kind of organizing. Oh, sorry, my. I don't know if you can hear my email beeping in, but uh, I should figure out a way to close that down. Um, that uh, if there is a sort of or text uh, that that depicts what it was that that America essentially is and would become, it's not what uh, our political uh, theorists and our and what we in our sort of national piety tend to think. It's not necessarily you know the Federalist Papers or or Locke's Second Treatise of Government, or the, or the writings of Jefferson, although they quite, quite interestingly events what I'm about to say, or even more ominously Hobbes' Leviathan. It's something more like uh, Francis Bacon's uh, New Atlantis, which depicts a kind of scientific and technological utopia. Uh, it depicts a society that is collectively bent on um, mastering the energy of nature and has, has elevated that to the status of something like a religion. 
Um, you know, they're, they're, and, and, accurate, and accurate, chronistically, there are a lot of sort of 16th century peculiarities to that text. But in that sense, in that essential sense, it's a pretty good description of, of, um, of what we are. I think that's, that's fascinating. Just as an aside, you know, um, before pursuing this a little bit further, the, the, the whole question of kind of the success of technology is something that I find really amusing at times, you know, like you'll hear, you hear people say, you know, we've, we've, um, we're working on a cure for this cancer or like whatever. But then when you pause and step back at the big picture, you think, well, okay, that's a success in a way, but that cancer didn't exist 150 years ago. You know, none of the, none of them did. Right. So it's like sort of our, our success is based on sort of moving forward to solve problems that our technology has created in a sense. Um, at least that's, I don't know, my perspective on some of this, but. Well, I don't, I don't want to attribute every cancer uh, to uh, some prior technological intervention on our behalf, but the but the general observation that you're making, I think, is 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 absolutely right, and I think it points to something um, essential about about uh, uh, modern technology in particular. I mean, certainly, you know, probably inherent in human making as such, but you know. Bobby will know this, and, and you probably do as well. That you know, I've been deeply influenced by a um, Jewish philosopher, Hans Jonas, um, um, who makes the observation, and I think he's certainly right about this. That while this might be inherent um, in uh, human making as such, um, the capacity of of ancient humanity um, to uh, probe deeply. Um, uh, in, in, into nature or to expand its power um, far beyond the human scale was relatively limited, right? And, and therefore, while there might always be uh, unanticipated consequences to human action, you know, ways that we affect the shape of, 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 of future human civilization through the things that we make and, and build. I mean, you can think about, you know, the, the downstream consequence of, of, the Roman Empire uniting the Eastern Mediterranean through an unprecedented system of roads, for example. While that may be true, um, there's something peculiar about, about modern technology in the, the, the range of objects it presides over, the, the, you know, the depth at which we are able to penetrate um, uh, into the inner workings of nature, and um, uh, consequently the consequences that, in, that ensue from these interventions. And the result is, is that um, we can't anticipate, you know, is that the, the effects of our deeds typically elude our control, right? And, and we can't anticipate all the downstream consequences of our, of our interventions, especially as, as, they, um, as these pertain to, increasingly pertain to um, our intervention into our own nature. Right. If you make a, 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 a heritable modification to human nature, you have immediately, precisely because of its the way it historically propagates, um, you immediately lost control of your ability to contain the consequences or or whatever defects you may have introduced. So, you know, Jonas has this great line that, you know, you can't recall scrap populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think that that. Um, uh points to something really essential about the powers that we have accumulated to ourselves, namely that we're not really in control of them. We're not really, uh, we cannot really foresee, anticipate, prevent, um, 
the downstream consequences. And as a consequence, therefore, we're oftentimes, as in your example, um, find ourselves confronted with a with you know a, a state of perpetual emergency, coping with the effects of our previous deeds. So you know, I don't know where you guys stand on anthropogenic climate change, for example. But this would be one instance, right? No, no. At the at the at the outset of the industrial revolution, no one anticipated that we might have it within our power to fundamentally alter the basic ecological health of our of, of our planet in the shape of our weather. You know, to the extent that that's true, um, it, it would be a, a, a perfect example of um, of this phenomenon. You know, or you know, we're discovering. Uh, it's interesting the studies that have come out just in the last couple of weeks about the. Um, the microplastics that we are apparently ingesting with every meal and every sip of water, mm. right? That it's such that it's now not clear or not not obvious that we can actually avoid. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I haven't studied these things closely, and I don't know how much alarmism. You know, I'm not pronouncing on the veracity of of these reports and the stories, and I don't know what they mean. But they at least introduce the possibility that we have poisoned ourselves or in the process of poisoning ourselves uh, in a way that exceeds our capacity to correct. Right. And we hate to despair. Of course, we're, we're not people of despair. We won't despair. But at the same time, when, when we hear people talk about solutions, it, it, it almost sounds moot to some degree. I mean, you in, in an essay that Bobby and I were just talking about that you wrote for First Things in 2016 called A More Perfect Absolutism, which is an article I share with people. I think it's just a really wonderful piece. You say oh, technology. Yeah, it's, it's just terrific. And um, you make so many good points in there that I think you make, you know, in, in other places too. But you say in there, technology does not wait on politics. Even the state cannot finally contain the forces it unleashes. So whenever you have someone, and, and it could be, you know, um, Greta Thunberg, the environmental activist, or it could be, you know, somebody else on the complete other side. It's almost as if, no matter what your side, when you're standing up saying, you know, we've got to do something about this and we've got to use politics to kind of, you know, to pass laws and redirect or, you know, whatever this may be. It's not to say nothing can ever be done, but it is it is kind of naive in a way, isn't it? It sure seems to be. Um, sure seems to be. And particularly insofar as our attempts to, quote unquote, address the problems um are thought through with this in the same manner of reasoning that produced them right right i mean you know the the idea that there is and must always be and can really only ever be um uh technological solutions to fundamentally human problems it seems to me is to attempt to treat the, the you know the sickness with more of the disease now, that's not to say that, um, you know, the application of technologies for cleaning up an environmental mess produced by our technologies isn't something that we should should seek or strive for. Um, it's not to say that, you know, to, 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 to reject that too core would be um, to, um, you know, refuse medicine or something, which, of course, none of us realistically has any interest in doing. Um, but it is to say that, that if there is... Um, to be a quote-unquote solution, 
uh, it probably involves trying to recover um, uh, some of what this technological civilization and its dynamisms have suppressed, namely, um, more fundamentally, um, untechnological and or atechnological, as it were, and human uh, ways of 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 living and above all thinking. You know, I, I'm I'm a big proponent in the in the in the absence of uh, an obvious technological solution to the problems that technological society has generated. I'm a big proponent of um, understanding um, and and and, uh, and of recovering the value of uh, of, of philosophy uh, and recovering the value of thinking and understanding. Um, for its own sake, both as a way to more uh, uh, deeply penetrate um, the real meaning of some of these problems, but also um, uh, as a different form of living, I guess you might say. Kind of on that note, I'm, I mean, I've been thinking a lot, like if this is the kind of world that we've been swimming in, just, you know, taking it in like, you know, fish and water, not even realizing that we're in this, um, and not realizing that with that water, we're ingesting all these microplastics. <laughs> yeah, but like, you know, but as Catholics, you know, you think, you think, um, okay, like I go around Krakow and I'm taking pictures of the place all the time. And then I'm posting it up for people to see. And I just constantly think, oh my gosh, I'm using this place. as It's like a standing reserve of some kind of like thing for me to then put up online. Um and then I'm I'm often thinking when I'm doing this, okay, this the essay concerning technology by Heidegger oftentimes comes up, and I'm like, okay, well, how am I doing this in some ways in other respects uh, to even my way of approaching the the faith, the church, um, and instead of kind of like, and I'm thinking about this in terms of, of the city of Krakow, instead of just like inhabiting the place, truly living in this you know, the city and being a member of the city, in some ways, I'm, while I'm taking pictures, I'm still kind of at a remove uh, from it, using it still. But I'm oftentimes thinking, well, how does this like technological way of thinking inform like the way we see even things like the tradition or even seeing, you know, when people become Catholic, how do they view that? Is it to now become like, okay, I'm going to become somehow a content creator or something else, that, and that will be my, my vocation. And I know I'm bringing a lot of things in here, but it, the, the, the way that we, what you're pinpointing um, about this kind of techno, techno logos, how, how, does that, how have you seen this actually informing our way of perceiving the faith? Oh, man, that is a vast question that seems to me to have, like, it probably has layer upon layer upon, you know, upon layer. Um, let me try and uh, attack a few of them. Uh, I mean, the first thing, and some of the, the things that I've written about um, the state of the church, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, and the, the the various talks that we've seen uh, bandied about about um, uh, paradigm shifts within the church, for example, um, it seemed to me uh, can be understood in part in terms of the the, the broad movement that 
that, that I've described that, um, in other words, the, the loss of the value of, of contemplation, the loss of the value of uh, philosophical thinking, um, the, the, the replacement of um, contemplative and philosophical form, forms of thought and a, 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 a traditional uh, conception of truth by what we have broadly considered, uh, you know, a technological one, a, 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 a functional and practical one. This isn't a phenomenon that is outside of us and outside of the church. Um, and there is a real danger um, uh, at, I think, you know, the highest levels, in fact, that uh, of, of succumbing, as it were, more completely and, and, and unwittingly, actually, um, to this pragmatic uh, uh, and technological spirit under the guise of, of pastoralism, for example. Um, uh, so there's that, right? And, and uh, you know, this, this, this particular podcast, this particular discussion isn't about, uh, you know, the state of the church and current events and the controversies and divisions. So I don't want to go, you know, too far in that direction. I'll just, I, I'll, I'll just point out that, um, those aren't unrelated to what we're talking about. Um, on the other hand, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, you point to something more, um, I suppose, empirical, one might say, uh, which is the way that um, uh, technology has so, you know, and, and social media have so colonized the public square. You know, if it doesn't, you know, if a tree falls uh, in the forest and, and, and Twitter doesn't hear it, does it make a sound? Right. If you're if, if you're not engaged, if you don't participate in the world in a, in, in a, in a way that is mediated by uh, uh, social media, do you belong to it at all? Right. I mean, the question about uh, uh, I've said and written this before, the question of, you know, whether you know to tweet or not to tweet. Um, or to 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 be present in these in, in these in these media is no longer just a question about um, uh, whether to avail yourself of some particular media or technological instrument. Uh, it's really a question about whether to be visible as a participant in the public square because this is where the public square now is. That exerts an enormous pressure. Uh, Upon people, I mean, insofar as I, you know, publish in media that are, uh, you know, available online, I'm not exempt from this pressure either. Uh, though each of us has to ask ourselves, you know, ab about the extent to which we're going to we're going to be involved in it, creates an enormous pressure to um, um, to be visible, to be present, to adjudicate these issues via these media. Which, you know, I think Marshall McLuhan is exactly right. In, in, in recognizing that the media itself um, shape the, the, the content and the quality of our thought. And so I think, you know, there, there, there's a lot of interesting thought to be done. Uh, people, a number of people, including many who I fundamentally disagree with about almost everything uh, uh, in, with respect to what it means to be, to, to be Catholic, have also pointed this out, and, you know, the way in which our ecclesial life and and, and our arguments about um, uh, fundamentally what it means to be Catholic are are distorted and have been distorted 
by the omnipresence of uh, of this media in our lot, these media in our lives, and the way um, that this is our common meeting point. Um, and I don't quite know, uh, you know, how to think about or or or, or what to do about that. Um, it seems to me that it's certainly a factor that that that, that has to be taken into account. Um, it's also a, a factor that rightly or wrongly has rendered certain, you know, pieties about the 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 role of the laity relative uh, uh, to the hierarchy um, um, obsolete, uh, at least empirically speaking. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I don't think it has helped um, the cause of Christian unity, that's for sure. Dr. Hamby, there's a there's a, a pair of images that somebody put together a few years ago. Uh, one of them was uh, the picture outside uh, there in St. Peter's Square right before uh, Pope Benedict XVI was about to come out onto the balcony. And the other one was the same scene right before Pope Francis was about to come out onto the balcony. Now, this, now Pope Francis, now that was 10 years ago now. I mean, even so even that was a long time ago. But the first image of Pope Benedict, everybody was just standing in the square. There was maybe a random camera here or there, whatever. In 2013, when Pope Francis became Pope, every single person in the square was holding up a phone, every single one of them. So just in that sort of few years transition, the church, the faithful, everybody sort of fundamentally changed the way they were perceiving and sort of living in reality. And, you know, just to connect this to some of the points that we were making earlier, and then I love your thoughts on that. You know, it seems to me that the problem is, right, and you, you point this out, that technology that or technocracy or whatever it is it's a totalizing vision like we don't even we don't even know like we talked about before swimming in the water we don't even know that we're being coerced like it's just it's just is the way it is and the church although we don't want to talk in terms of like coercion but you know but the church too is supposed to be a totalizing vision so i mean it seems like the for the church to be in the world in its current current setup is very very complicated such that like even at the highest levels of the church it's basically kind of just another type of technocracy, right? Uh, I mean, I'm reluctant to say that. I mean, certainly not in essence. Um, but, uh, now, I want to be careful also. Um, in, yeah, in, sorry in, for in, leading you down the wrong path. In, yeah, in, I, in I, this I, field. Yeah, um, go ahead. Let me, let me put it this way. Um, we are no longer in uh, in the. I mean, I, you know, a, a lot of disgruntled people have often pointed out this this fact that in the 13th century, um, for example, just to draw a, a, a century out of a hat, um, it was quite possible uh, for the average uh, Catholic to live the majority of his life. Um, with little, ha having never seen a pope, um, uh, with little or no knowledge uh, as to what, uh, to who a pope is, uh, uh, to what a pope might say or or, or, or teach at any given instance, right? Um, that's obviously changed uh, for uh, a great many um, 
uh, historical reasons, you know, over the course of the last uh, two or three centuries. Um, but it has arguably changed to such an extent um, that, it, that, that the church now communicates wittingly or unwittingly, right? Um, in, in intentionally or unintentionally, not only um, uh, through what it says or through what it promulgates, um, but by the images that it presents of itself through these media, oftentimes without ever saying anything whatsoever, um, in ways that um, um, it's naive to ignore, right? And it does this, you know, uh, and so you think about, um, uh, for example, um, and again, I don't want to, to, to venture too far into a, a, a thicket. Um, but you think about the, the response to fiducia supplicans, right? Uh, and the image, you know, the, the effect that created by the promulgation of that document, the way that it was taken up into the, into the, into the media, um, the, the consequences of that uh, uh, within the culture. I mean, I think about, I mean, you know, Famously or notoriously, as you might have it, the, you know the fact that within um, uh, uh, two or three hours of the promulgation of that document, you have you know Father Martin appearing on the uh, the front page of the New York Times in a in, in a in a photo opportunity, and the various messages that are communicated without saying anything by virtue of, of the, the the photo opportunities of, of uh, Father Martin with with the Pope. Um, Without evaluating, I, I, I bring these things to light, um, not um, uh, to, to, to comment upon their content per se, so much as to point out that we have here something unprecedented, a, a, a technologically or media-driven dynamic um, um, that is um, in, in which it's possible to, to produce or inevitable that one will produce and, and will generate um, through this media environment, um, uh, effects um, that are quite um, uh, other than what anything anyone might say. So um, this is no longer a, a, a phenomenon or a dynamic that we can ignore, because this is what it is to you know uh, to be a, a, a church that is visible by means of these media. Um, and it's not clear to me that we that we know or that we have categories, really, you know, theological categories um, for thinking about that phenomenon. Yet. You know, I was I was just reading um, for a class that I was teaching. We were we, in, in a class that I was uh, that I just finished this morning. We were reading some excerpts from from Luther and in preparation uh, for this. I was reading some of the the. Um, the prefatory documents announcing each um, session of the doctrine of the of the Council of Trent, um, and you know, and, and and each one concludes with um, uh, an instruction for how uh, the these instructions are going to be sort of uh, nailed to the door of the Church of the Lateran and promulgated for X amount of time, um, you know, prior to uh, the, the the convocation of the meetings and so forth. Um, that's not the world that we live in anymore, right? Where the church just uh, 
uh, issues uh, uh, a declaration, uh, and and everyone reads it and 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 responds accordingly. We now uh, communicate by deed and by image, as well as by um, uh, uh, proclamation, and that can be by design, but that's also um, and and that can be um, uh, well used or, or or manipulated by design, but it's also just an inevitable consequence of the kind of uh, technological and media environment in which in, in which we live. And we've got to uh, reckon with this in certain ways. I know Larry Chap um, has been uh, you know, doing some thinking and, and, and some writing about this. Um, it seems like we may have drifted a long way from from Bobby's original question, but it's just to say that um, just in the same way that uh, that, that that technology um, that the that the question of technology um, can be posed at uh, in and of itself at a variety of of, of different levels and, and in a variety of different ways that it concerns both the sort of empirical instruments at our disposal um, and this this new kind of philosophical way of apprehending the world. So to your question about, about um, technology and the faith, um, it seems to me can be posed at, uh, at, at, at similar levels uh, and, and, and relates or, or um, is pertinent to all of them. Well, it just seems to me that like, um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because uh, I'm, I'm teaching a lot of 20th century history and it, it seems to me that in 20th century, it's nothing but power in terms of and just the various dynamics of it. I mean, if you want to talk about the century of Karl Marx and, you know, going with him or reacting to him, it's the 20th century, it seems to me. And, you know, I just finished up, you know, going over all the various, you know, political parties in South Africa. And, <laughs> and the kids are only learning about strategy and tactics as the textbook presents it. And it seemed to me, I actually, I gave him, because I was reading your, your essay, I gave him a little bit about, okay, well, let's think about this. Is everything then at the end of the day reduced to politics or just force? And, you know, some, some, for some of the students, the light bulb went off. And I'm like, well, why, what are you studying for? I mean, I'm always asking these questions. And then ultimately, it's to like, what, what are you for? Uh, what's this whole dang thing for, like the whole cosmos? And so inevitably, uh, that way of thinking is totally foreign to them. But yet the kind of like the the all the various uh, like the tactics that makes sense. But I was just thinking, well, I'm so tired of reading the news, especially the Catholic news lately, because it just seems to me that we're so stuck in that way of perceiving the, the faith. It's just it's just seems to me like the question of truth oftentimes is like it's important but the real issue is the the kind of power politics and all of that so i don't know it just seems to me that we've all <laughs> drank from this well and there's there's a uh, you know a real need to to because even even things like you think about like adoration and all this other stuff that would free you perhaps from that, or just thinking about, okay, we're meant to pray, and it's about, like, worshiping God, um, that stuff then gets thrown into this political fight. Yeah, I mean, I I concur completely, and it's, um, 
it's another manifestation of, I think, um, I mean, it, I should give, give you the antecedent here, um, the politicization of everything. Right. Um, uh, is, 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 in a certain sense, the, the, the political form of uh, the, the same phenomenon that we're talking about in the, in the technological sphere. I mean, and, it, and what ultimately um, is at the, the root of it is um, the loss of the eternal, right? The, 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 lo the, the loss of, of, of the eternal and um, the equation, of, you know, the, 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 the reduction, whether explicit or, or um, inadvertent of, of truth to power or function or effect, um, the dominance of pragmatic thinking. In other words, you might say, um, uh, and, and the the remarkable thing about that, and, and I think you hinted at this, Bobby, is that um, we don't even see it. You know, I've, I've kind of I have this line that I've used in a number of things that I that I've that I've written. You probably, and maybe even in the 2016 article that you were um, uh, mentioning earlier, Andrew, that. Um, how remarkable it is that there's no such thing as a profound question in um, American life. And I remember how struck I was when that occurred to me, you know, that, that um, there are questions of, of, of deep import, right? Questions about the very nature of things, about that um, we're incapable even really of posing. And not only that, um, we're not troubled by our, that incapacity. We don't notice its, its, its absence. We, we, we adjudicate those questions all the time, uh, but we adjudicate them in other forms, you know, as, as uh, questions of what we can do uh, through, you know, biomedical technology or questions of, of uh, adjudicating our competing rights claims in the, in, in the, in the political sphere. Um, and it's, the, our, our incapacity to ask what is true or to think about what is true in principle with respect to, to, to God or human nature. And again, there are both secular and ecclesiastical forms of this problem, I think. Um, the replacement of, of philosophy by sociology or, or psychology or you know, uh, other functional forms of reason in the church. Um, uh, it, it's remarkable to me what uh, a loss that at the, one of the same time what a loss that betokens, um, and yet how we seem not to recognize uh, or know what we're missing. I'm not sure that was apropos of anything, <laughs> uh, but no. it, it attempts to sort of comment on the um, on on your observation, which I think is spot on. You know, and, and, and the various ways in which, um, you know, power rules our lives. It, I think it, it is uh, important that you that you brought that up um, because, uh, you know, one of the one of the issues that we've kind of bounced around without necessarily taking a, a, a strong stand is, you know, there's this this ongoing question, certainly among kind of the Catholic intelligentsia, but but beyond as well about kind of this whole like liberalism, post-liberalism, kind of that kind of question. And I guess the question that I have for you on that front is, is this kind of all politicized reality a, a natural byproduct of liberalism or is it 
I, what is it? I mean, do, do we have, do we sort of know the pedigree and, and are we concerned about, you know, uh, finding some alternative of uh, some reality, some way of organizing ourselves in the future that would mitigate that a little bit? You guys don't ask small questions. Uh, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's a great question. Um, it just, you know, it probably, to, to answer it satisfactor satisfactorily, probably, you know, requires much more uh, than I can give you in, in, in this space, or maybe that's even at my disposal. What I, what I think I would say um, is that liberalism is... Um, the political form you know, of a um, an understanding of reality that is already dispensed with eternity and already adopted this kind of technological form of reasoning. Um, so, it, you know, it's not an accident that 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 modern science and technology and and and, and liberal political order emerge in side by side and grow up together and are oftentimes the product of the very same thinkers. I mean, you know, Hobbes, Locke, Bacon, Thomas Jefferson, for that matter, they are simultaneously sort of natural philosophers adopting this view of nature and of reason and political theorists. And I don't think that's accidental. And so um, I, for I forget exactly how you phrased the question. But it seems to me that that it's not just that that liberal political order produces this kind of pragmatic form of of reasoning as its predominant mode, um, and thereby excludes uh, uh, questions about the, the the true nature of things from its its um, from its understanding of reason and really from the world. It's not just that, that, that liberalism produces this. It also presupposes uh, the understanding of, of, of God, nature, knowledge, and truth that makes that inevitable. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, I, I think certainly the, the, the significance of liberal political order uh, in, in helping to give birth to something like uh, a, a, a new Atlantis uh, and its characteristic forms of life and thought is not to be minimized. But I wouldn't want to absolutize it either, because underneath liberalism are um, other judgments of a fundamentally uh, philosophical um, and theological character that are in some ways um, more basic than the, 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 than the politics itself. And kind of is that an answer to your question? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think you're you're so you know if not to flatter you, but you're such a such a scholar that I think you know these big questions you want to answer them in big ways. But I love the way that you're able to just boil them down for us because they, well, that's very I'm meaningful. It down. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. hope that makes some sense. If not, I'm 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 I apologize. No, very much so. But, but this connection, disconnecting from like uh, eternity or not having eternity um, be kind of seen, seen as like the connected to the temporal. Um, I was I was thinking um, I think it was on Chap's podcast. You mentioned two thinkers who you think are like really important today, like Charles Pegui and Maurice Blondel. And Pegui has uh, I think it's in English entitled "The Temporal or the Eternal and the Temporal." Um, and I, I've been thinking, you know, Andrew and I we we 
that kind of as a patron for this new project decided because I was thinking about pilgrimage all the time and hope and and Pegui just kept and I learned about Pegui at the John Paul II Institute um but I just kept thinking about Pegui and he dies right at the beginning or right World World War One when it seems like the European order comes you know falling apart and it just seems like he's posing all of these questions and seeing at the heart of the kind of a lot of the things that you know, we're, we're now, you know, identifying during this podcast. Um, but do you have anything to say about Pegui? Like, why, why did you say that Pegui is so important, including like, maybe if we don't have time, but like Maurice Blondel as well? Yeah, I mean, I mean, first of all, just at so many levels, um, you know, I love Pegui. I mean, at his portal of the mystery of hope. Um, I often tell, you know, I've my students that that's how I want to exit the earth. If, you know, if I, if I, if I get to choose my own deathbed scene, it will be, uh, you know, with someone reading Pegui to me on my, uh, on my way out. It's so beautiful and, and, and so profound and I'm never not affected by it. But in, in, in this particular instance, I'm thinking, I'm thinking particularly of, um, uh, that, uh, little collection, um, that in English title, the temporal and the, and the eternal. And it, it, it just seems to me, um, that that Pegui in a profound way sees into the 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 heart of um, what he calls the mystical or the the the, the metaphysical disaster um, of the modern age in a in a profound and and, and unsparing way, uh, and and. Um, and he rightly, in a certain sense, attributes it. I mean, it is the project of a failed uh, Christendom in a certain sense. And so one cannot, I mean, at one and the same time in reading Pegui, you know, um, one rediscovers, I think, you know, the grounds of profound hope while not falling into any kind of error of triumphalism um, about, uh, you know, Christian responsibility uh, for the for, for the mess that we're in. Um but the mess, as he describes it, is not, is, I mean, I think he perceived quite early and quite deeply um, the, the, the post-Christian and therefore not merely bad Christian character of, of, of the modern world, the depths to which um, it amounts to uh, a rejection of what he calls, you know, the whole Christian system. Right, it just uh, uh, an overcoming it was setting aside, and and ultimately, in a certain sense, it is the, the the essence of that rejection is a kind of disincarnation, insofar as it represents the sundering of the temporal from the eternal. Right, um, and um, Blondel. One of the reasons I find Blondel. Well, I find I find I find Pinky really helped for for coming to grips with with um, uh, the depths of uh, the catastrophe that we're living in without losing hope. Uh, and I find Blondell particularly helpful. And I'm thinking here particularly of you know uh, of history and dogma, for example. Um, uh, Blondell to be particularly helpful in that you know he's writing about. Um, he has a, a, a really kind of like uh, 
deep appreciation of the real meaning of the modernist crisis uh, and the inadequacy of the church's initial attempt to respond to it and address it. And insofar as what we are experiencing now is a kind of um, degraded reliving of uh, relitigation of that crisis, right? With but you know, with the with the church increasingly um, divided between a kind of recalcitrant traditionalism, you know, the eternal without the temporal, so to speak, or or etern- uh, the eternal that remains kind of extrinsically related to it. Um, one form of extrinsicism, um, juxtaposed to a kind of a modernism that represents another form of of, uh, of of extrinsicism, a kind of extrinsicism from from below. You know, history is this sort of imminent uh, uh, theater of power relations that has to be negotiated horizontally. Um, it seems to me that that, that both thinkers taken taken together just cast a really um, searing light maybe on the 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 moment that we're living in now um and um yeah so i would you know i, I just encourage a kind of patient and and uh uh careful reading of them in light of um you know the the, the divisions that are currently afflicting us within the church certainly um, but also the way those divisions within the church reflect the deeper um, metaphysical or, you know, what he calls the mystical crisis that uh, of modernity more generally. I feel like I'm retreating to higher and higher planes of abstraction in trying to, uh, to, to answer your questions. I hope, again, that that makes some um, sense. Absolutely. It, it does. That, that... It, that leaves us uh, that leaves us with hope to be sure. And uh, on that note, Dr. Michael Hanby, we will encourage our audience to read some Peggy, some Blundell, some Hanby, just to read. I think that's a great way to uh, try to find start. a way, yeah, to get some metaphysics back into reality. Um, for those who are watching or listening via audio only podcast, we encourage you to uh, rate us, to share us, and to uh, let us know what you think about these conversations that we're having. We're having a great time with this project at the Space Albi Institute. Check us out, spacealbiinstitute.com. For now, thank you, Dr. Michael Hanby, for joining us. Thank you both so much. It was really a, a pleasure to talk to you. I enjoyed it tremendously. Until next time, God bless and live in hope.